right, well, tonight we are going to be in Psalm 88. Um, we'll be reading the entire psalm, or the, uh, all 18 verses. I'll bring the text up on the screen. And as I've kind of advertised this a little bit uh, from last week and this week, this is uh, famously the psalm uh, that uh, has effectively no praise, and, uh, but it is an important psalm and one that we, uh, um, that we will uh, wrestle with together tonight. So let us go to the Lord in his word here from God's word, his people. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shale. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long and close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So a very cheery mood tonight, as I've been telling you. But I couldn't help but think of uh, a, a hymn writer. I've mentioned him before, but the English author of the hymns, there is a fountain filled with blood and God moves in a mysterious way. Uh, uh, William Cooper had a, uh, both a blessed and difficult life. Uh, William had, uh, he's an Englishman and uh, was operative around the time of the Revolutionary War. Initially, uh, William, who was the son of a pastor, had gone on to study law, uh, but he became so despondent over his studies, uh, coupled with his inability to marry the woman he loved, uh, he even attempted to take his own life. After some time in a mental asylum, he was released and made his way over to Olney at the invitation of a pastor who tended a small congregation there, a pastor by the name of John Newton. John Newton and William became uh, close friends, and John encouraged William to write hymns with him to help cheer his soul. 
It was in the only hymns, the collection of 300 plus hymns, uh, that Newton wrote his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. William uh, Cooper, for his part, contributed nearly 70 hymns to that, uh, uh, to that collection. And John Newton wrote about 280 hymns, and uh, William uh, provided only 68 uh, hymns, uh, and including the ones that I mentioned at the beginning. But William struggled with deep and dark bouts of depression and what uh, they have called, you know, mental breaks and, 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 uh, and bouts of s- severe depression in his life. And near the end of his life, uh, he became convinced that God had truly and ultimately rejected him. One of his most famous poems uh, was uh, toward the end of his life was about a sailor who drowns at sea. Though he continued to believe the gospel and to uh, write hymns and other poems throughout his life, he simply could not shake the idea that he had been abandoned by God. And I think we can see a lot of William Cooper's story in Psalm 88. The psalm brings to the church the uncomfortable experience of faith under sustained and terrible affliction with no relief in sight. We love to recite and sing Psalm 23 as well we should about how the shepherd guides us through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, a line that is sung by those who generally have passed through the valley and stand outside of it. But here is a song written by one who has tarried long in the valley of darkness and doesn't know when they will leave it. Tonight, we are going to tarry there as well with the writer, and we will consider Psalm 88 along three major uh, lines of thought. Uh, First, the experience of darkness in the life of God's people. Secondly, darkness and God's sovereignty, which is a huge theme in this psalm. And finally, our hope when we are in the darkness. So first, uh, we see that the, uh, very, uh, quite obviously, that the people of God experience darkness. As we read this psalm, what comes through is the reality that, the believers, uh, that believers experience great hardship in this life. We, and we can comprehend uh, the experience of darkness. And, and I'm moving from not so, just to, I don't want to talk about depression specifically. Uh, depression is a part of this psalm. It speaks to depression. But I want to I be careful of the kind of modern Western tendency to just be like, this is my therapist psalm. You know, like this is my counselor psalm. It's like, no, this speaks to depression. And, and when we experience it, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but I think it's better to understand it in terms of a, uh, of a spiritual and just the experience of just darkness in one's life. And he categorizes it, we, can't, or, uh, we can kind of break it into two uh, aspects of this. Uh, and the first would be the, the sense of overwhelming oppression uh, coupled with paralyzing helplessness. In verse 3, the psalmist describes himself as having his soul uh, that is full of troubles and near death. In fact, there is a pervasive fear of death throughout the psalm. In fact, the great fear of the psalmist is to die 
under the wrath of God as he communicates that in in verse 7, describing himself as a man drowning in the waves of God's judgment. His desperate helplessness throughout this psalm comes through vividly. He says he has no strength because he is like that of a dead man. It is as though he has been locked up in a deep, dark prison cell and there is no escape. He sums it all up in verse 15 where he says his whole life has been one of weakness, being near death. And he literally says, I am helpless. I could do nothing. And that and depression though, often does come when we have that experience of sustained helplessness. It's not just a moment of helplessness, but of sustained helplessness. Um, if we're trying to achieve something of great importance to us, uh, whether it's a, a job aspiration uh, to, uh, let's say, repair a relationship, something that is really meaningful to us, and we try something and it doesn't work, so what do we do? Well, we try something else. And then... Uh, and that doesn't work. And we say, well, we're Americans, so we're going we're, we're gonna to keep trying. And so we keep trying, and we keep trying, and we keep trying. And so, and you keep trying, and things aren't working. And so one of three things is going to happen is that, one, you will continue to try something else and continue trying. Second, you'll move on. You'll move on to another goal. This is not going to work. It's not going to, I have to move on. Or third, which, uh, which is not uncommon, is people will fall into a depression. They will fall into into that mental darkness. And, 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 so, and so we have this with the psalmist where it just, it's like no matter what he does, everything is falling apart, everything is terrible, everything is awful. And he just, he just cannot, you know, we like to say cannot win at life. And so you have this paralyzing helplessness that he feels. Now whether this has actually characterized his whole life, but this is what he feels like in the moment here. And, there, and there's probably some truth and reality there to his experience as well. But you, co- but you, you take that and pair it with uh, the rejection and desperate loneliness that is expressed in this psalm. The author of the psalm writes that he has been discounted by others. In verse 8, his companions has, have shunned him. He repeats this at the, at the end of the psalm where he says his beloved and his friend have shunned him. His companions now are darkness itself. Even worse, he feels in verse 14 that God has cast his soul away and that he has turned his blessed face away from him. Here is a man who feels abandoned by man and by his God. As I've been saying, the psalm is not a happy psalm. It's not one that puts a nice little bow on it at the end of it. A lot of these psalms will be really hard stuff and at the end it'll turn real like it'll, there'll be a big praise at the end and there's just there's that turn doesn't come it's a difficult psalm and it's not the one that you want to read if you're looking for just a quick pick-me-up from the scriptures but it's an important psalm because it speaks to the experience of darkness in many christians lives it clearly pushes back against the idea that being a Christian means that all of your life is easier and happier if you just do it right. As one Christian author entitled in his book, Christians get depressed too. But there are some that teach that isn't true. You probably heard that teaching somewhere. 
uh, where so they'll, they'll say, well, if you're depressed, that's really, uh, that's really because you're not thinking it rightly or you're not doing this rightly, you're not doing that rightly. In fact, I, was, uh, I had a friend who was, things were going um, very uh, uh, badly. Uh, uh, just, he was just having a really hard time and he was told by other Christians, they said, you know, uh, if you would just stop uh, uh, chewing tobacco, then God will actually turn all his other problems around. He's, if that's the thing, is the chewing the tobacco. That's what, if you just clear that up, God will just bless you, okay? There is that teaching out there, and it does a lot of damage. Because what it does is just go, you know that thing that you do that bothers me? Yeah, if you would stop doing that, God would bless you. And like, unless you're God and you're not, then don't talk to me about that, all right? It happens. Uh, and so, uh, but we have here in the scripture it, that here's a man filled with terrors and sorrows who feels abandoned by his friends, and feels abandoned by God. Now, one interesting uh, note here is that we are given the author's name. He-Man, that's how I have to pronounce it, sorry. It's, it's He-Man. <laughs> but it's He-Man the, the Ezraite. Um, but if you're looking for He-Man in the Bible, there he is. Um, and, but He-Man was a, a wise man in David and Solomon's court. He's mentioned in 1 Kings 4.31 and 1 Chronicles 15, verses 17 and 19, where he is appointed as a singer in, in the temple of God's people. Now, interestingly enough, the, this time period of David and Solomon, it wasn't free of hardship, especially for David, but, it, but, the, but the time of Solomon was the golden era, right? This was the most, the, David and Solomon's reign were the most prosperous years and times of Israel's history. This was, this was the best. David was the best king, and it was the best time to live as an Israelite was during Solomon's reign, where everything was great, you had rest on every side. And yet that's when Psalm 88 was written. Think about that. It wasn't during the exile. It was during this. So what might that teach us? Perhaps that even in times of great peace, strength, and affluence, the, in the, uh, the church, God's people, you or I, may experience great afflictions and suffering. We would do well to think of Bible characters who might appeal to Psalm 88, even if they lived before it was written. Joseph, when he was imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, well, he certainly felt abandoned. I mean, his brothers threw him in a pit earlier. Remember that? All right. Maybe Moses, when he was chased out of Egypt and he fled out of there too because the, the Pharaoh sought to kill him and he was out in the wilderness. Well, what do I do now? Right? David, as he first fled from Saul, who sought to kill him, and, uh, and then from his own son Absalom, who sought to kill his own father because he wanted the throne. Or Israel, when they were exiled. I mean, think about, think about being someone who was born in exile as an Israelite. And so we've, what we've just done here is we've experienced and described the experience of this felt darkness that the psalmist has, that this helplessness and this loneliness. And it's miserable. It's a terrible thing to feel about. It's not fun. Uh, but this brings us to the, the wrestling we have with darkness and the sovereignty of God. Now, the one, the one of the things that, that comes remarkably clear throughout 
uh, this psalm is that God is in control. God is in control. There is no doubt in the psalmist's mind that God is in control. That's the one thing he knows. It's impossible to miss. Throughout the psalm, Heman appeal, appeals to God. He says, you have put me in the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with your waves. You cause my companions to shun me. You cast my soul away. You hide your face from me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Now, the psalmist is not accusing God of sinning. Uh, rather, everything here falls within what happens when God turns his face away from his people. The biblical picture of blessing is God looking upon his people and smiling. The biblical picture of curse is God turning his face away from his people. Because when God turns his face away is when the bad things come in. When one reads the book of Deuteronomy, towards the end, you'll find uh, the section on blessings and curses of the covenant. The blessings are wonderful. The curses are terrifying. Don't read it before you go to bed. It disturbs, this, this, but this, the, the, the presence of these chapters, and to hear God say things like, because uh, he says in, the, in there, in the blessing, he says, you know, if you, if, you, uh, if you follow my commandments and live as my people, then I will, I will bless you as you go in, I'll bless you as you go out, and I'll, you know, I'll be with you and give you victory and all these things. And then he says, but if you don't, if you violate my commands, he says, then I will curse you as you go in, and I will curse you as you go out. I mean, when, God, when the Lord threatens to curse someone, that's, I mean, somebody online can curse me. That's fine. Go for it. You know, go for it. Have, have, have at it. Have, you know, you have a field day with that. But if the Lord curses me, then what happens when Jesus curses the fig tree? Right? It is cursed indeed. Right? So, so, this, so, so the curses are terrifying. And this disturbs the minds of many believers in the church, largely because they have known their God as a loving father, which is a true and great thing, but they, many have neglected the scriptures or they have forgotten the scriptures, they were never taught from the scriptures that God is also the judge of the world, that God is holy, and that even, as a, even a loving father disciplines his church. And while it is debated... I do believe that Ananias and Sapphira were believers who were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit about their real estate investments. But we also read about the persecuted church that suffers, which God truly loves and cares for. The point here is, is simply that many believers have a distorted view of God in the Christian life, largely because of the affluence and comfort they enjoy rather than anything that is actually taught in Scripture. It's more kind of an American version of Christianity that has distorted things to say, well, God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy. And people have imbibed that because when bad things come in, they go, well, how could God allow this to happen? That's a fine question. It's okay to question. It's a natural question to ask. But if we, do, if we come to the fact that either, well, God doesn't or he couldn't or, uh, you know, those types of things, you know, it's like, according to what? According to where? Because what I see in scriptures is Jesus saying it is through tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. That we are to take up our crosses daily 
to follow him. The New Testament letters speak of suffering for the sake of Christ, humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand until he lifts us out of the suffering and the affliction. That means he could do it. He might do it tomorrow. He might do it a year from now. He might do it when he brings us into glory. But God is in control whether he does any one of those three things. And so this, but this very naturally leads us to what we could just call a confused faith. I don't mean that as a negative way. I mean, confusion, confoundedness within our faith. This is true of the whole psalm, but in verses 10 through 12, it really comes out uh, pointedly. As all the, with just all this confusion of Haman as he, um, as, as with his experience uh, colliding with what he knows about God. And, you know, what good is he to God uh, as the recipient of wonders and the steadfast love of God uh, and to bring praise to God if he's dead? Corpses don't sing. And so he doesn't understand what God is doing. Why would God seemingly cast his soul, his life away? And this confusion actually makes sense in our experience. Even our confusion states that there are times, or, or sorry, our confession, sorry, our, 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 the Westminster Confession, you know, highlights this. It says explicitly that there are times where God may remove our sense of his presence in our lives based upon his sovereign will, based not because we did something wrong, not because we did something bad, but in order to draw us closer to him and to cause us to long for him, he may sovereignly remove the sense of his presence from us. And they're pulling that from scripture. Um, it, it's, it's, it, that experience is confusing and bewildering. It's one thing to be in sinful rebellion against God and to experience the suffering that comes in connection with our sins, Right? Lord, why am I suffering? Well, because you robbed a bank and you have to go to prison now, right? That's consequences for your sins. Lord, why has this disease come upon me? I've, I've tried to live healthy and make all these right decisions and all of a sudden I'm doing all the right things and all of a sudden I get this disease or this, I get a broken leg or I get, you know, I, I get something happening to me. And so we're going to get to the hope in the darkness here. But I simply want to make the point here that confusion is normal. We see expressed right here infallibly in God's word. Infallible confusion in the scriptures. And so if you're confused in the midst of suffering, God, why would you let this happen? You have a psalmist doing the same thing in the Bible. And so before we get to the hope, just note that the psalm with all of its sadness was put here by God for us to teach us, to confirm for us the reality that God's people experience deep felt spiritual darkness. And that in itself is a, is a mercy. Sometimes it just helps for someone else who's going through something as miserable as you're going through to say, I know what you're going through. It is miserable. And you say, thank you. Now, why does that make you feel better? Misery loves company. Why? Because there's a sympathy there. There's a connection there. But it's true. It is a comfort there. And there it is, right in the scriptures, in black and white, a comfort that confirms the hardness and the difficulty and the confusion 
of suffering. Depression, feeling, being in a, in a felt spiritual darkness is not for the bad Christians, is the point here. It happens to normal, ordinary believers who live in a fallen world and have a remaining corruption that they are making war against. It happens. And since our God is in control, while we may not know the particular why of our suffering, we do know that the suffering of believers is never without purpose. It is never without meaning. And we know that the God who is in control loves us. This is why one scholar wrote this, the sovereignty of God, which does not explain itself, but is brimful of infinite wisdom, love, power, and justice, which is therefore far beyond our grasp and sight, that sovereignty is also our pillow when all is darkness around us. This brings us to our hope in the darkness, typo, but our hope in the darkness. There's a Hebrew festival called uh, that's connected to poor. We'll just say I did that on purpose. All right, um, but we have our hope in the darkness. Um, the psalmist's hope, we note, is in the God of his salvation. The psalmist's hope is in verse 1. The psalmist opens the psalm with the ground of his hope, the God of our salvation. The whole psalm is written in the context of faith, in the context of the saving grace of the covenant God. The psalm teaches us to bring our depression, our darkness, our wounds, our confusion, all of our pleading to God, to bring it to him. As Christians, we have a Savior who is referred to as the man of sorrows, who was familiar with suffering, the one who, according to the plan of God, was abandoned by his friends and cried out on the cross, quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was righteous and pure. Yet Jesus knew why, and we know why. Jesus had engaged himself to be the suffering Savior. And his sufferings, his wounds have made us clean and have won eternal life for us. He has ushered in the new covenant by his blood. And when we suffer, especially for righteousness' sake, we know that Christ has redeemed our sufferings that we endure in this life. That, we, that when we suffer for his sake, we suffer in the way of the Savior and in the path of glory. I love how Tim Keller put it in it, and this is, this is often I, I go back to this when I'm counseling people who are wrestling with a, a, a deep, dark hardship, when they're wrestling with suffering in their life, uh, something terrible that has happened to someone they love or to them, and they're asking the question of why. If God, and they don't even have to be somebody who, who believes even in a strong sense of God's sovereignty as we do as, as Presbyterians or as Reformed folks. 
Um, there, there are people who don't have uh, that strong sense, but they still believe God has a plan. They still believe Jeremiah 29, 11. They still, they believe that actually God is in control and they wrestle with why would God allow this to happen? Am I, and, and, and so I really appreciate the way Tim Keller approached this and, and I've adopted this in how I approach it as well. But he said effectively this, he is that I don't know why what happened to you happened to you, right? This, uh, God doesn't give me that knowledge to know exactly why what happened to you happened to you or what happened to me happened to me. But I do know that we can trust the God who made us and who sustains the universe by his will and his word. And I know that because of the suffering on, of Jesus on the cross, that what happened to you did not happen to you because God hates you. Because he gave his son for you because he loves you. And I found that it, that, it, that is the heart of counseling and strength. And that is the heart of, of the enduring faith in seasons of suffering for God's people. And so, uh, so we come to this point, we're trying to make sense of this psalm for us today. And we've already done a bit there, uh, a bit of work there with the, uh, as, as it points us to Christ, as the suffering and the darkness point us to the cross and the resurrection and the light that Christ brings in through the gospel. The, the scholar Derek Kidner, though, he helps us, uh, he had a very helpful summary of kind of, of, of how to really apply this psalm and, and some of the stuff we've already, we've already discussed, but he has four points that he makes. And the first is that uh, the psalm raises the possibility that believers may have lives of struggle and hardship. Secondly, he says that the psalm confirms the teaching of Paul in Romans 8 as we groan under the uh, affliction of a fallen world as we long for the coming glory. Third, he notes, he notes that the psalmist does not give up. He continues to go to the Lord in prayer. What does he say? Day after day, I come to you. I spread out my hands before you, meaning he's laying face down with his arms out. Right? He says, day after day, I come to you. Morning and night, I cry to you. He doesn't give up praying to his God. And fourth, the author's apparent rejection by God was not actual. But his suffering was used by God to not only establish an entire section of the Psalms that we like to call lament, but also to minister to God's suffering people. You know, William Cooper, for all his struggles, he's considered one of the greatest poets of his age. One of the greatest poets of the modern, even outside of him writing. If you go study, study poetry, William Cooper is one of the big dogs. Because <laughs> his, 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 his poetry, by the time he died, one of his poetry books was in its 10th edition. And his hymns have, have lived on. As a suffering saint and his, wor and his, and his words came and, and are a continual comfort and strength to Christian believers. And so God's pe as God's people, we see here that, that we can experience felt spiritual darkness. We can have lives that we would characterize as darkness because of the hardship and the affliction we experience. Now, the, now we may not be able to say with, with, uh, uh, with the psalmist here that it's been ever, you know, ever since we were young, our whole life has been this way. 
but some will and some can. But there are the very least periods where we are, as Psalm 23 says, going through that valley. As confusing as it may be, when we are in that darkness, we know that our God is in control. But thankfully, that is not the extent of our help, although that could be enough. God could say, you need to trust me. I'm in control. But God has done more than that because our hope is in the Savior who knows what it is to suffer and to die under the wrath of God. Think about that. Jesus died under the wrath of God so that we would not. He went under darkness and affliction and sorrow and suffering so that we would not experience what he experienced on the cross. His sufferings are our salvation. And if God can redeem the sufferings of Jesus, can he not redeem our own? And this just confirms that reality. And this is so important. And I've mentioned it earlier, but I'll just say it again. The sufferings of believers are never meaningless. Never purposeless, never senseless. There are no wasted tears of the saints. They are all redeemed in Jesus. And so all of this speaks to our perseverance as the children of God. And to that point, I'm going to close tonight with an extended quote from John Calvin on, on this psalm, on Psalm 88, and what it means for our faith. And this is what he says, quote, Experience teaches us that faith, while it fluctuates amid these agitations, continues to rise again from time to time so as not to be overwhelmed. And if at any time our faith is at the point of being stifled, it is nevertheless sheltered and cherished. For though the tempest may become ever so violent, Faith shields itself from them by reflecting that God continues faithful and never disappoints or forsakes his own children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not abandon your children, but that the shepherd is with us always in the darkness. And Lord, though we may at certain moments of our lives feel as though we have been abandoned, by every, uh, every uh, fellowship and every friend. We may even feel that we have been abandoned by you. We pray, Lord, that we would, as the psalmist does here, come to you in faith and cry out to you that we would, re- that we would rehearse the gospel promises, that we would look to the Savior who also cried out on the cross, to the Savior who died under, under your wrath, but was raised in glory that he would redeem our sufferings and sorrows. Lord, and then may we do as as the Apostle Peter told us and humble ourselves under your mighty hand until you lift us up in due time. Father, may we not shrink back, but when we are in, in, in that darkness, may we continue to cry out to you knowing that you are with us that your hand is upon us, even if we don't feel like you are, that your covenant promises are greater than our feelings, greater than our experiences, and that you will uphold and redeem and, and that you will
preserve your people to the very end. For as we even talked about this morning, our Savior intercedes for his people and he is able to save to the uttermost because he always lives to intercede for us. We pray this would comfort our souls and strengthen us as we go from here, that we may be a source of strength and encouragement to those who are suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now.